Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. They're calling it the nightmare on Granville Street. Swarms of Halloween partiers crowd into the downtown entertainment district on Saturday night. Much to the concern of the police and public health officials. Have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter Grace Key. Clearly no social distancing on Halloween night along the Granville Entertainment District. Extra officers were brought in. Police say partiers were mostly peaceful, but some had to be removed. One officer tweeting, Group of us were just swarmed by an angry crowd on the Granville Mall after a street party erupted. Another tweeting, It was a Halloween like no other. Complete gong show all around. Vancouver police say their response needs to be reasonable and proportionate to what they're faced with. Adding physically attempting to disperse the alcohol-fueled crowd or issue tickets wasn't appropriate. Although there were a number of occasions where the police were met with hostility from the crowd, our officers maintained a professional and balanced approach. Purely unfair. It's unfair. It just doesn't make sense. Chit Chat Burger Bar on the Granville Strip hired extra security on Halloween night and the owner says he may be forced to shut down soon. Inside we follow the rules, outside no rules, you know, no social distancing whatsoever. So for us restaurants to be penalized, you know, Dr. Bonnie Henry, please let us, we're going to go out of business soon. Police say there were a number of arrests for minor offenses with no reports of injuries. Grace Key, Global News. Okay, you got people swarming the cops, really, on Saturday night in downtown Vancouver in the entertainment district? Come on now. You have people are, be careful what you ask for here, because if this kind of stuff continues, that's when you get the lockdown and the shutdown orders here. People trying to keep these businesses open, but when you get behavior like that, it's bad news. Let's check in with Jeff Guinard now, Executive Director, the Alliance of Beverage Licensees. He represents the bars and pubs in, in British Columbia. Jeff, thanks for coming on again. Hey, my pleasure. How you doing this morning? I'm doing good. Thank you for doing this. What did you think about that big crowd on Granville Street on Saturday night? You know, all kinds of things, right? So initially, I, I just you think of the businesses and the people who live in that area. Like, we're all getting pretty sick of this. Uh, there's obviously a portion of our society, and it's young people in particular, who uh, either don't believe COVID is serious or they just don't believe in following the rules. Uh, and we have uh, we've tried over and over again to convince them of that. But I do think you also have to ask yourself, I mean, what did you expect, right? Like we have a bunch of young people, folks who are not following the rules, of, and they've shown us over the course of the summer, right? And we've limited their options for entertainment or how they can, you know, have fun safely by shutting down bars at 10 p.m. Uh, you know, of course this is going to happen. And, and I know some people look at the police and say they should be doing a better job enforcing uh, but what do you expect a couple of dozen police officers to do when um, a few thousand intoxicated young folks uh, get hostile and say we're not following the rules, right? Uh, so it's a really, really crappy situation. What, what is what is your understanding of, of what happened there on Saturday night? Was this a case of people spilling out of the bars when they were forced to close down at 10 o'clock? Or are these people yeah, who were no. already, already drunk coming downtown or what? 
Yeah, this has nothing to do with bars and restaurants. I mean, we're, we're uh, pissed off about this as well. And I, I um, people's knee-jerk reaction when they see someone consuming alcohol or drinking on Granville Street is to assume it's, it's the bars and restaurants down there. Um, you know, folks are getting intoxicated. And these, like, these parties were happening like hours after the bars were closed, right? Yeah, um, now, yeah, the bars are busy and we have folks in there. But, you know, if we were allowed to operate until midnight instead of until 10 p.m., uh, we could stagger the folks coming out of there, right? We would be there with door staff and able to work through programs like Bar Watch directly with law enforcement the way we have throughout the entire summer and prior to this. And I know that um, public health officials had, had rolled the, the hours back to 10 p.m. on the assumption that that would help spread the or stop the, the spread of COVID-19. But I have seen absolutely no evidence to suggest that that's happening. The case has been going up ever since that, that okay. um, those shut down. Speaking of Jeff Gleenard, he represents the pubs and restaurants in, in British Columbia. What are the rules down there right now for the operation of, of these clubs? They're like, what is it, 50% capacity? Is that still the deal? Uh, no, it's not a capacity thing. It's basically you're not allowed to sell alcohol past 10 p.m. Yeah. And every bar or restaurant is, um, has to, their capacity is limited by the, the COVID protocols they have in place, right? So keeping group sizes no more than six and keeping tables right. two meters apart, right. which none of that happens when they're out in the street, right? So if we could bring a few thousand of these folks inside of our establishments uh, by remaining open later, then we could help enforce the rules, make sure the distance, but, make sure the group size, right? But isn't there, I mean, we're told that the risk of transmission is greater indoors and it's less likely to catch it when you're outdoors. So how do you right. square that? Bit, yeah, this is for me about almost harm reduction, right? So you tell me what you think is safer, six people sitting at a table two meters away from anybody else or a few thousand people several inches from each other on the streets. Yeah, okay. Well, do, are you fearful that there could be a public health order to shut bars and restaurants down? Uh, I do not think that makes any sense. I don't think we're going in that direction. Um, I don't think the, the public health officials would look at a massive street party and make the illogical connection to say that it has anything to do with restaurants around the province, right? I mean, uh, that, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. What we need is a combination of education, enforcement, uh, more severe penalties, and allowing bars and restaurants to do their part by giving them a little more time during the course of the evening to take some of these people off the streets and keep them safe inside uh, where we can enforce the rules. Are, are businesses following the rules down there, as far as you know, or are there some bad actors out there that are that are not following the rules? Because I just wonder if, if it makes sense to bring in orders, shutting down bars at 10 o'clock ac- across the entire province, if the situation is maybe there's just a few places that are, are bending the rules or not following the rules, and maybe you'd be more effective to bring the hammer down on yeah. the people that are breaking the rules instead of penalizing everybody. I completely agree, Mike, and that's been one of our frustrations. And we, we, when these rules came out, we responded with, like, well, what are you talking about? I mean, I know from visits um, to over 30 establishments in Granville and Yaletown that about 95% of them were doing everything correct, right? So if we've got a couple of bad operators out there, let's deal with that, right? I mean, that's that's what enforcement should be for. We should have extremely stringent penalties. And everybody in the, the hospitality industry, every bar owner, restaurant owner, pub owner, would have your back on that. They would say, yeah, shut where, down the bad operators because they're ruining it for the rest of us. Where are these people getting hammered? Like if they're not drinking in the bars and and people are in the, on the streets very late at night, hours after the bars have closed. I mean, is that evidence that there's indoor house parties going on and then people yeah. go downtown to party on the street? Yeah, it's a couple things. I mean, we have noticed, I mean, we also represent liquor stores and I'm, I'm sure BC liquor stores have experienced the same as private liquor stores that sales go up later at night now, right? And... Um, you know, we do everything we can to ensure that we're selling it to people who are, you know, sober and stuff. But then they, they take them out into the street and they, they, you know, consume too much of it and they're drinking outdoors, which you're not allowed to do. And additionally, yeah, people are um, pre-drinking, right, at uh, house parties. And then 
uh, you know, we heard from some of our members. I mean, there are people who are not even in their bars, but we're just coming down to meet some friends on the street for the party, right? So it has nothing to do with the hospitality industry. It's just, um, for whatever reason, this this segment of our society, they're not not paying attention to the rules, right? And it's fine to blow off a little steam, but you have to do it in a way that, you know, respects the public health crisis. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Have a wonderful day. All right. Welcome back. British Columbia bracing for that COVID-19 case count this afternoon. Health Minister Adrian Dix already dropping hints here that the new three-day case count for new COVID infections could be a record breaker this afternoon. This will be a three-day total of new confirmed COVID infections, hundreds of new cases expected to be reported. Could the government be getting closer here to lockdown orders? We're seeing it in other jurisdictions. Make sure you keep it locked here. 3 p.m. this afternoon is when that new case count will be delivered by the health minister, and we will bring you that live right here on CKNW. So just make sure you keep it locked right here. All right, speaking of COVID-19 and some of the rules and restrictions around the operation of business in this pandemic, let's talk about travel now at our airports. Currently, the rule is for international travelers coming into Canada, you have to do that 14-day quarantine when you get back to the country. What about a system of, of rapid testing for COVID-19 instead? Rapid testing. You test negative, you can go about your business. You don't have to do the quarantine. Lot, the airlines want it. They want to get people confident again. They want to get people traveling again. They're, tr- they're experimenting with some of these rapid tests at airports. Have a listen to this here now. This is Ed Sims. He is the president of WestJet, and here he is talking about rapid testing. It's not an overstatement to say that today's announcement is actually the first piece of good news we have received as an airline since February the 29th when I sat on a Sunday afternoon watching our bookings get outstripped by cancellations. Hey, the WestJet president there talking about a COVID-19 rapid testing system being tried out at Calgary International Airport. That's where they're trying it out right now. Should this be expanded to other airports? How about YVR? In Vancouver, maybe every airport should have rapid testing for COVID-19. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Barrett Armin. He is the president of Unifor Local 7378. They represent the pilots at Sunwing Airlines. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Thanks a lot for coming on. No problem, Mike. Thank you. Okay, I know you guys want this bad, and you'd like to see this program expanded. Can you explain how it would work, this COVID rapid testing at airports? Yes, exactly. So when passengers arrive uh, from an international destination, they're sort of queued to a rapid test uh, station where they could take a rapid test. And if they test negative, they go about their daily business. In Calgary, they've rolled out this program where you take the test and then uh, six days later, you take another test. Uh, In the province of Alberta, anybody is allowed to do the test, uh, provided they stay within Alberta because the testing is set up. Uh, you know, at uh, London Drugs and other testing facilities that they have there. Uh, to have this rolled out across the country really is no problem at all. Uh, one thing I'd like to speak about that uh, probably a lot of people don't know is yeah. rapid tests were available in Canada in June. Uh, our local actually secured a half million rapid tests from a company called Healgen, and they could have delivered a half a million tests within 72 hours. So throughout the entire summer, our local, along with Unifor and others, have been petitioning the federal government to approve these rapid tests, which are approved in many other countries, Europe, the United States, Australia, and all of Asia. Uh, And it's been nothing but uh, crickets. 
It's well, okay. How rapid is the rapid test? Like after you take the test, how three quickly? Minutes. Three minutes. Okay. I, th- I thought three the minutes. I thought the one that's being tested at Calgary was like a two day waiting period. It is. So you're saying that they, there's a there's a faster one that they can get and, yes. and roll out? Yeah. There's many. Yeah. Okay. So so the deal would be okay. So let's say you return to Canada on an international flight. You take your rapid test. You test negative. Then what would happen? Then you would not have to do the quarantine. Is that what you're arguing? That's what you want? That's correct. Yeah. What happens if you, like, isn't there an incubation period, though, for this virus? Is it possible that you could be infected, and but it doesn't show up in the test until a few days later? Yes, there is. But yeah. what, we, what we discussed with the federal health minister was, in terms, of, in terms of flying, flying is safe. In fact, it's safer to fly on an airplane uh, than it is to get on a bus or get in an Uber. Or go to the grocery store because the air circulation in the plane uh, changes so quickly and the air is so dry that it's not really an infectious place at all. Uh, Not nearly what you would find in some of these heavy transport uh, buses or Ubers or even when you go out to a restaurant for dinner where the air just isn't circulating. So, yes, there is sort of a period where uh, people could have no symptoms. But to say that they got it on an airplane is ridiculous. you could get it in the Uber. You could get it uh, in the elevator on your way to the apartment downtown. Okay, it's about reducing of, risk. Speaking of Barrett Arman, he's the president of the Sunwing Pilots Union there at Sunwing Airlines. My understanding of, of the pilot project that's been sort of rolled out at Calgary International Airport with the rapid testing they're experimenting with there, it's a two-day test turnaround. So yeah. you take your test. You would have to quarantine for the two days. Until you get your the result of your test, you test negative. Okay, now you don't have to quarantine anymore, but you also have to agree to take another test six days later just to make sure, right? Um, do, do, do you think the follow-up test is a good idea? Like, let's say we get this instant readout rapid test that you guys want. Do you think it would be a good idea to do another one a few days later just to double-check? Well, you can, but then at that point... What are they actually testing? Are they testing that someone brought back the virus from somewhere that they were, uh, you know, six or seven days ago? Or are they testing that the person got the virus at the grocery store two days before that? Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, you guys want this what? what? What are you asking the government to do? Roll this out nationally? Yes, at every, every major airport. It's specific because the country can't stay closed uh, indefinitely. The country has been closed for eight months and our infrastructure is failing. Uh, the airports uh, can't maintain their airports. We have air traffic controllers that can't recertify because there's not enough air traffic in the air. We've got pilots that haven't flown aircraft in seven months. Everything we built over the past 60 years is really going down the tubes due to this complete shutdown. And the federal government has no plan in place uh, to bring us out of it. How many people this have been, how many workers have been laid off? Uh, just in aviation alone, we're not talking about hotel workers, taxi drivers, uh, anything like that. You have just 50,000 so far, just pilots, flight attendants, uh, you know, check-in staff, that's it. Not even talking about the hotel workers that are completely vacant. I mean, if you drive into downtown Vancouver now, the hotels are completely vacant. Do you All think of these if- people aren't working. Do you think if you brought in this system of rapid testing that people would start flying again? Like, what do you think? Do you think there would be the confidence? Would people have the confidence to say, okay, I, I, I'm willing to get on a plane now. I'm willing to travel again. Because I think there are some people who will still be scared. They'll still be worried. 
I do. I think they will uh, start to realize that, that traveling is safe. I travel uh, to Toronto on a weekly basis. I've been doing it since June. Uh, the flights are full. Mm-hmm. People just aren't leaving the country because they can't, because the government has literally kept us shut in. We're one of the few countries in the world who have actually shut down our economy to the outside world. Okay, what about the protests you guys are doing? Where have you protested? Where will you be protesting in the days ahead? So we did Ottawa a couple of weeks ago. We protested in Toronto last Friday. We'll protest again this Friday at YVR Airport at 10 a.m. Protests at YVR this this uh, this Friday. Okay, are they are they uh, are they doing some testing or experimentation with rapid testing at YVR? I thought the the airport announced they were doing something with WestJet. Do you know what's going on there? Yeah, so I can't speak for WestJet, but I do believe that there is some sort of a. Uh, uh, a plan to bring in rapid testing uh, just sort of as a test. Right. Uh, you know, obviously the federal government hasn't announced that they would adjust uh, the quarantine rules here in BC, uh, but they are trying to do uh, rapid testing of passengers at YVR shortly. Right. Yeah, One but you say it's should... too slow though, right? You're saying it's too slow, the rollout. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. What, what's yeah. interesting to me is the rest of Canada has to stay home, but Albertans, they can go wherever they want. And so I think in terms of, uh, you know, freedom of movement for all Canadians, uh, it should be open to all Canadians. You should have it in Vancouver. You should have it in Alberta. You should have it in Saskatchewan. You should have it in Manitoba, Ontario, all of our provinces. Okay. Are any other jurisdictions using this rapid testing system at their airports? Uh, In Canada, no. What about around the world? Yes, they do, actually. Uh, in the States, they are start, starting to do rapid testing, I believe, out of Washington State. Uh, there are some American airlines that do it uh, when you go to Hawaii. Uh, I know they have the rapid tests all through Asia. Uh, I've heard in Dubai they also have testing. A lot of these countries are testing people when they come in. Uh, it's easy enough for us to test on the way out and on the way in. Uh, something else that's interesting to note is these rapid tests, aren't just for aviation. These rapid tests could be rolled out in schools, in old age homes, all of these areas uh, where we're trying to protect individuals from transmission. Uh, The issue is is the delay. These tests are $7.50 each. And when I can get a half million at my door in 72 hours, my question is why are we not doing it? Okay, it's an interesting issue. We continue to follow it closely. Thank you for coming on today to talk about it. Thanks. Appreciate it. All right. Barrett Arman, he is the president of the Pilots Union. All right. Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Brian Burke, the former general manager of the Vancouver Canucks. He's had an amazing career in hockey. He's been a player agent, head of discipline for the NHL, managing executive for five NHL teams, including the Anaheim Ducks, where he won the Stanley Cup in 2007. He's now a TV analyst with Sportsnet and a published author. His new book is Burke's Law. A Life in Hockey, which I read cover to cover on the weekend, and I thought it was great. I'm very pleased to welcome him, Brian Burke. Thank you very much for coming on. Uh, thanks for having me on, Mike. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. Congratulations on the book. I really enjoyed it. I read the whole thing on the weekend. I, I got the feeling when I was reading it that there were probably some stories that you left out. I mean, was it was it tough to decide what to put in and what to leave out? Uh, no, the, te- the test was basically anything that was one-on-one with the player and executive uh didn't make the book. Uh, the, the encounters that I put in the book were stories that were commonly known by the entire team and management team. So it didn't really pull back the curtain too much. But I wanted people to see and understand when you're an executive, 
that you do have, you know, dealings with players, with coaches, with owners, with other GMs. Yeah. And I wanted people to feel like they were in the room. Well, I certainly had that feeling. I thought it was a terrific book. I really encourage people to ch- to check it out. I thought it was awesome. A lot of f bombs in there, Brian. I mean, is, is that the, you drop a lot of f bombs in your daily speech like that? Boy, it's a lot of yeah, a lot of swear. That, that's well, we took a bunch out. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. <laughs> it, it's it, it's kind of like if you're in the military. That's I want people to understand how people in the industry speak. That that's how it how it goes. So. <laughs> um, I, it's not a kid's book. I don't make any apologies for that, but it was never meant to be a kid's book anyhow. Okay. Did you enjoy working with Stephen Brunt? He's, he's probably one of the best sports writers in the country. He helped you out with the book. I know him. I've worked with him in the past. How'd that work out for you? Well, I think he did a great job. I, yeah. I had written a hundred pages of the book before I hired Stephen and he took one look at it and he said, this is garbage. We can't use this <laughs> for anything but a, a, a timeline, a time frame, And, um, he said you're right like a lawyer, which I am, obviously. So, yeah, yeah. Hey, Brian, let me. You, you cover your whole career in the book. Let me ask you about your own uh, your own playing days. And you played um, you played college hockey, collegiate hockey, and minor hockey. Did you get? You never got drafted, right? But the the Philadelphia Flyers took an interest in you at one point. Yeah, and under the old system, if you weren't drafted, a team could later put you on a negotiating list. And I was put on after my third year i was put on uh, the flyers negotiating list so that was the only team that was allowed to negotiate with me so it was equivalent to being drafted but i was not drafted and back then top college guys a lot of them weren't drafted and so uh yeah. you know it was a different time and age but the uh, flyers were were great they signed me and i played the next year in the american league for them and loved every minute of it yeah i enjoyed the stories about the american hockey league which you described as being like a real life slap shot being in the movie Slapshot. It was very different when I turned pro. I, I tell the story in the book. My first practice, and it was 11.30. Um, we practiced, I think, at 10, and I came off the ice. as a sunny day, and I was feeling really good about myself. Here I was getting paid to play hockey, and and two guys in the dressing room, <laughs> one of them called for the trainer, and he brought out two big beer cups full of ice, and they started. they poured a... Uh, straight rye whiskey they had a jug of whiskey under the stall where you keep your skates and they pulled out a jug of whiskey filled up the two beer cups and started drinking it was before noon and uh, i was i was amazed and and at the first period of my first game we played the, the providence reds the first period i came in after the first period seven guys in the dressing room with cigarettes in their stalls and sat <laughs> in their stalls smoking a cigarette during the, during the intermission. It was amazing. Oh, man. Okay, those were the days. Yeah, it was like a slap shot movie come to life. Uh, you're in the Flyers organization. They were a tough team, the Broad Street Bullies. Uh, did you ever get in any fights? I fought Frank Bay the second day of training camp, and he was a, he played for the Flyers for parts of three seasons, and he was the toughest guy in camp. Um, I, I thought I was going to get in a fight. I had a, a fight mapped out in my mind. Yeah. So we're we're in training camp with the Flyers. Bobby Clark's got the puck on the half wall, and his left wing was was Bob Kelly, who was really tough. So I thought, okay, I'm going to steamroll Bobby Clark. Bob Kelly's <laughs> going to come after me, and I'll fight him. But I didn't realize how strong Bobby Clark was. I was much bigger than he was, and I thought I was going to run him right over. I bounced off him. He braced for the head. I bounced off him, and I thought, well, plan B, <laughs> plan A was to fight. Plan B is don't look so stupid. 
<laughs> Speaking of Brian Burke, the former general manager of the Vancouver Canucks, about his new book, uh, you make a, a case in the book, Brian, for defending fighting in, in hockey, a controversial issue in the sport, of course. What what is the basic your basic defense of fighting? Well, I don't have to defend it. To be honest with you, Mike. I think it's part of our game, and the people who don't understand the role it plays aren't paying attention. It's about accountability. And I think the league has legislated the amount of fighting out uh, down dramatically. I think they've eliminated fighting as a tactic, and I applaud both of those things. But to eliminate it altogether and take out the accountability that it keeps in our game, I think would be a big mistake. Let's jump, Hey, Brian, let's jump ahead to your days with the Vancouver Canucks. And, and you started out as an, an assistant to Pat Quinn, right? And I, there was one line jumped out at me in the book that, in a lot of ways, you wanted to be Pat Quinn. He was a, a big influence on you, S- sadly passed away now. Can you talk a little bit about Pat Quinn and what he meant to you? Yeah, it was just a gift to work for Pat Quinn. I learned so much from him. He was such a, a great teacher and, and such a patient man. And, you know, we were both green when we started. He'd never been a GM before, and I'd never worked for a team before. So we were both really green on the job. And he was a great teacher, very patient. Um, I remember he called me and he said, I want you to take care of team travel. And I was like, I never even played in this league. What do I know about travel? He said, we'll figure it out. So we flew commercial back then. We only chartered if we had a back-to-back, and we flew commercial. So I called Roger Shearson, who was our travel guy. And I said, how do I do team travel? He said, well, it's pretty simple. Call the coaches together, and we'll go through the schedule day by day. So Bob McCammon, Jack McLarge, who we just lost, sadly, uh, and oh. Mike Murphy, we sat in the conference room, and we went through the schedule. Okay, we play on October 6th. We play our home opener. October 8th, we're in Edmonton. So what do, we, what do you want to do on the night? So we'll practice in the morning and then fly, book a commercial flight at 1 o'clock to Edmonton. And then you go to the next day. From Edmonton, you go to Winnipeg. So went through and did the whole schedule and did the travel all in, in, in about four hours. I think it took three and a half, four hours. So, But I went back to Pat. I said, we got the travel done. He said, you did it already in one day? And I said, yeah, it's not that hard, not that complicated. <laughs> you had a great run with the Canucks. And a lot of you had a great uh, relationship here with CKNW in those days. I remember when Dan Russell was doing his show and you did that weekly appearance on, on CKNW that was very popular. I know you had though you had some run-ins uh, with local media. Let me let me play this here for you, Brian. This is um, going back to 1998 here on CKNW. Um, this is you on with the uh, late Neil McRae. Have a listen. What was out of context? Well, one of your bosses at NW agreed with me, Neil. So we're going to leave it till tomorrow. What was out of context? Are we going to talk about hockey? This is part of hockey. No, it's not. This is about your ego and your morning ratings. Now, are we going to talk about the Canucks or not? It's got nothing to do with my ego. I'm asking you. I'm asking you if we're going to talk about hockey. I don't have to explain anything. I'm asking you if we're going to talk about hockey or not. Oh, we will be. Okay, let's go. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Neil McRae, he was a bit of a legend in the sports scene in the city. You had lots of clashes with him. But you had had good relations with a lot of the press and, and some tougher ones with other guys, right? I had a great relationship with virtually everybody, including Neil. Yeah. Neil and I did yeah. a show together, and that that clip that you play, and that other people have played it for me before, and, and I should, you know, the late, great Neil McCray. Neil was a great guy. Yeah. And we got yeah. along well. We About once a month, we'd go to Earl's and the foot of the, the bridge there. On the other side of the bridge, Camby Street Bridge, and, and we'd drink beer together for three, four hours. Um, I had a great relationship with Neil. That particular fight was... 
I would do the show uh, with Dan Russell, right? And then Neil would take abbreviated bits of it out, so he'd, he'd, he'd play an answer but not the question. Yeah. So it, it was it was really unfair, and so I talked to the, the people at NW, and they're like, "You're absolutely right. If you're going to play the answer, you got to play the question." So that was what that fight was about. I said, "Stop editing my comments and picking out the little parts that you look where you say, for example, say Jim Sandlack had a real bad game." Yeah. And I'd say Jim Sandlack has been a really good player for us for the last month. Last night he was awful but we love the guy and it's great. Well, he would only play the last night he was awful part. And needless to say, no team's going to put up with that. So that was the, the source of the objection. And, and, and Neil and I figured it out and worked it out. We got along fine. All right, welcome back. My guest is Brian Burke, former general manager of the Vancouver Canucks. His new book is Burke's Law, A Life in Hockey. Brian, let's jump ahead to uh, 1998. You're hired as the general manager of the Canucks, and you describe in the book how the Canucks were going through a real bad time when you came in as the GM. They had fired Pat Quinn. They traded Trevor Linden. Mike Keenan was the coach, controversial guy. What did you you threaten to beat up Mike Keenan when he when he pulled the goalie in the first period in a game once? Yeah, we were playing in Maple Leaf Gardens, and he pulled the goaltender Garth Snow in the first period just to. We are losing. He just really is before I traded Pavel Bury. And he was trying to make the point that, you know, we needed players. And he was right at, at, at that point. We're playing without a 50-goal scorer and, or the players that would have come back for him. And it was tough. And he was just trying to make a point. It was pretty obnoxious. And, yeah, I threatened him. Yeah, and he backed down, right? Yep. <laughs> okay. Okay, he was a tough. He was a tough guy. What about Mark Messier and his time with with the Canucks? Was he um, was he with the team when you took over as a general manager? Yes, and yeah. I know I, I know that chapter of the Canucks isn't popular, and Mark Messier was viewed as a failure in Vancouver. But I enjoyed yeah. having him as a player. He was still a good player. He was a good leader. Um, we had a chance to move. You know, I had a chance to move him, especially after my second year there. Uh, we had an option for his services for one more year, which we were not going to pick up yeah. $6 million. And if we didn't pick it up, we had to pay him a million dollars. And I called him in right. be, well before the trading deadline and said, we're not going to exercise the option on your contract, Mike, so, or Mark. So if you want to go somewhere else and try and win a cup, now would be a good time to tell me. And uh, he said, even knowing that we weren't going to pick up the option, he said, no, I came here to do a job. Job's not done. So I didn't trade him, and he went on to play for the Rangers for, I think, four years after that, four more years. Uh, I, I have plenty of time for Mark Messier. I thought but he was you, really good. But some people say he's the most hated player in Canucks history. Do you think that's fair? Not by me. You yeah. know, it's not fair. Yeah. yeah. What I about think the expectations were that they'd sign him, and all of a sudden the team would get better. Well, one one player, even a really good player, can't improve 20 guys in a room it's it's not like basketball where one player can have a significant impact on your team immediately uh it's more you got the supporting cast is so important and no i, I don't think that's fair at all okay well, there were a lot of controversies that, uh, on ice incidents when when you were the gm people will remember the the marty mcsorley hit on on Donald Brashear when he hit him in the head with his stick. And then, of course, there was the, the infamous Todd Bertuzzi attack on Steve Moore. And let me play, and of course, that led to charges against Todd Bertuzzi. Wow, what an incredible incident that was. And you write about this openly a, a lot in the book. 
Uh, let's go back to that time. Here's a little bit of Todd Bertuzzi's press conference here after the Moore incident. Steve, I just want to apologize for, for what happened out there. That I had no intention on hurting you. And I feel awful for what transpired. That's when uh, he hit Steve Moore, and Steve Moore had suffered a neck injury. Um, was Bertuzzi ever the same after that? No, I don't think he was. And Todd, Todd Bertuzzi was a, was a great Canuck. And he's a great guy. He just he he made a senseless mistake. A minute or a second and a half of his life, he'd love to have back. But yeah. no, I don't think he was the same after that. I don't think any player could be the same after that. Do you think that whole incident was handled fairly by the league? Because I know Bertuzzi got a big a big suspension, but also the Canucks got fined. It got a big fine too. Yeah, I didn't think the fine was warranted. But I think Gary, as I say in the book, I think Gary was determined. This incident was being replayed not just on sports stations, but all over, time after time after time. And Gary wanted to get it off CNN and get it off the news stations. And so he put, imposed a really dr- draconian penalty on Todd and on the team, and it worked. Yeah. It, it, people were satisfied that the penalty was severe enough, and they stopped talking about it and stopped showing it. So I think in retrospect, I felt at the time it was too harsh for Todd and too harsh for yeah. the team, but it worked. Got a few minutes left here with Brian Burke, former general manager of the Van- Vancouver Canucks. Brian, I want to know what it's like to w- to win the Stanley Cup. You won it all there with the Anaheim Ducks back in 2007. And have a listen to this. This is from the Victory Parade. You might recognize this voice. The Ducks, every single game, they said, we'll be back. The next game, we'll be back. The next game, we'll be back. The next game, we'll be back. And then... And then when it came to the last game, they said, hasta la vista, baby. Okay. Schwarzenegger. Did you get to know him? Did you party with Arnold there after winning the cup there in Anaheim? No, but I sat next to him when uh, at the parade. We didn't have a parade. There's really not oh. a real downtown Anaheim. So we had a rally in the parking lot at the Honda Center, and it was fantastic. And um, I sat next to Governor Schwarzenegger. And when Scott Niedermeyer got up and addressed the crowd, uh, the governor leaned over to me and goes, Niedermeyer, what part of Germany is he from? <laughs> I said, he's from, he's from Cranbrook, Governor, but I'm sure <laughs> one of his ancestors is probably from Germany. Oh, my goodness. What's it like to win the cup and get your name on the cup and hoist the cup? Well, it's, it's climbing Mount Everest for hockey yeah. guys. I mean, yeah. it's what we, as a player, it's what you always aspired to. As a management person, it's what you aspire to. And it's really hard to do. And there's 32 teams in the league when Seattle comes in next year. So you're due to win a cup every 32 years mathematically. It's very difficult to do. And you see the number of teams that get close. They get really close. They get good teams and they get to the conference finals or they get to the finals and can't get it done. And just getting to that point, just being one of the last four teams playing in the conference finals is really hard to do. So it was quite a thing. It was a, a big day in my life. Brian, we've only scratched the surface, uh, but sadly we're out of time. I re- Congratulations on the book. The book is terrific. Good luck with it, and thanks a lot for coming on today. Thank you for having me on. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the recent election in our province now, an historic win for the governing NDP. John Horgan re-elected as premier. The NDP wins a big majority in the B.C. legislature. Lots of new faces in the legislature as a result of this election, including my next guest, Aman Singh. He is the NDP MLA-elect in the riding of Richmond, Queensboro. He defeated very high-profile liberal MLA Jazz Joe Hall there. 
an historic win. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for having me on. And that's still, you uh, elect MLA, that still uh, sounds very surreal to me. <laughs> yeah, how about that? Congratulations on the win. Uh, this was a, a big victory for you and also for the party there, uh, taking away a, a seat from the Liberals there against against Jazz Johal. This was the second time you were up against Jazz Johal, right? You ran against him in 2017, right? I did. I did run against him in 2017. Yeah. That's correct. What, what was the difference this time around? Last time he won, this time you won. How come? You know, uh, uh, I think this speaks volumes to the uh, uh, work that the BCNDP has done in the last three and a half years, making life more affordable, providing better services, you know, keeping up to almost 80% of the promises. And uh, uh, at the same time, not, you know, uh, in the last election, you still have the, uh, the BC Liberals uh, naysaying, you know, that the NDP would destroy the economy. That was not true. Over the last three and a half years, we had AAA uh, plus credit ratings. Right. And then the response of the pandemic, right? The government yeah. stepped up to the response in the pandemic, and we've seen we've seen a stellar response from the uh, BCNDP and from our provincial health officer. Um, and I think I think I was carried, you know, that uh, had a big part uh, to do with my victory here. Okay, it's an historic win for you because you become the first turban-wearing Sikh ever elected to the bc legislature which it which is really something and of, and of course we've had we've had uh, punjabi mlas in the past and sikh mlas we've even had a sikh premier there ujjal desange um what do you why do you think what is the significance of you being the first sikh elected to the bc legislature wearing who wears a turban you know uh, <clears throat> uh firstly i'd just like to say that i'm really grateful for this you know it's it's it is long past due. We've been here for about 120 years since we've been here. And as you yeah. said, we've had some amazing MLAs, including a premier of uh, 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 a Sikh background, South Asian background, already in the legislature. Mm-hmm. And they've taken some phenomenal steps. But to be elected as someone who's so visible, right, and that's really it, is uh, not only is it the color of the skin, but this visible um, uh, symbol that you see, um, it just shows how open and welcoming British Columbians are at heart. And I think that is really the, the, the key of it, right? Um, you know, my entire life I've faced a lot of uh, discrimination because of the turban, because I, I wore the turban, uh, you know, uh, racial insults, been beaten up, all those things. And I think what it does is I hope that my presence um, and the presence of colleagues, of not just, you know, uh, uh, me being a turban-wearing colleague, but other colleagues of diverse backgrounds in Victoria, you know, indigenous leaders and, and women and, you know, other, other colleagues, uh, that this will continue to be a beacon to young people out there that are possibly having a difficult time with who they are, right? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and I've said this before, that a young Amman would have been really enthralled to see someone that looked like, like him in the government. And uh, you mentioned our, you know, our legislators that have been there before. You know, when I first came to, I immigrated from Hong Kong in 1989 mm. with my family, and I was ecstatic. I hadn't, you know, uh, uh, Hong Kong was under uh, British rule at that time, so there was, there was no real uh, elected government. Um, but when I came here and I saw Mo Sohoda and then after that Herb Dhaliwal in the legislature, I was enthralled. I was like, wow, this is, you know, this can be, this can, this can happen. And that, you know, those were big steps and this is just another step. Um, but, you know, finally it really shows um, how teachable, open and willing um, uh, uh, British Columbians are at heart. Speaking to Amon Singh, he is the new NDP MLA in Richmond, Queensboro. Uh, just elected, defeated the Liberals there. Jazz Johal, very high-profile Liberal that Amon defeated there in that seat. Uh, you mentioned that 
uh, because you were the first the first MLA to wear a turban at the legislature, historic breakthrough. You mentioned some of the discrimination that that you've suffered, and sadly and tragically, we're seeing a rise in this type of thing in our province, uh, especially with hate crimes on the rise reported to police, largely as a result of, of the pandemic, which is really troubling to see. You mentioned that some of the discrimination that you had received, including that you've been beat up. Like, when, when did you get beat up? Was that when you were a kid, or was that later? Yeah, yeah. As a, as a teenager, I was uh, a, a beat up a few times. Um, as, as an older or a young adult, uh, I, I was also, uh, um, you know, uh, assaulted, uh, uh, actually, in, in Abbotsford uh, many, many years ago, uh, just, you know, walking on the street. Um uh, verbal assault; those have happened until fairly recently. So um, it's been, it's been, you know, it, it's been sort of an undercurrent in, in my life, and I think in a lot of other people's lives. A lot of people don't speak about it. I think they, they keep it hidden, and yeah. I choose to speak about these things because I think the more you, the more you uh, uh, put these things out in the open, um, that's the only way to heal heal them. Right? It's to it's to move forward to educate people that these things exist. That you know, uh, uh, racial taunts can turn into racial violence. Um, right. So, uh, you know, I, I, I've always been very outspoken about this, and, and made sure that you know, there's that if there's someone out there that has experienced something similar, um, that they know that there are other people out there that, that they can get support and help from. Okay, that's really troubling to hearing that you were assaulted like that. How badly did you get beaten up? It was. It, it was not. It was. Uh, uh, not that bad. It was more jarring than anything else. It was oh, uh, sort of a uh, like a sucker punch to the face walking down the street. Wow. Many many years ago, we're talking like in the in the mid nineties uh, that that happened. Um, you know, uh, out of nowhere, uh, walking with a friend of mine, being told that you should go back to where you go back to where you come from. Um, just walking back from a restaurant out of nowhere, like no provocation, nothing, just walking down the street and. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, again, yeah, jarring and terrible, but, you know, it is, it is the world we live in, and as you, uh, you, you know, uh, I mean, I'm, uh, I was listening to the, the report just before that they're, you know, deploying National Guard in Washington, and I think a lot of the racism, a lot of the isms that have come out um, over the last few years, you know, we can directly uh, relate them to the, uh, 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 they've always been there in the, in the undercurrent, and yeah. uh, what, what's happened south of us has, you know, you, you have a, a world leader that have said, you know, come out into the open, I'll embrace you. And that has bled over into our country as well, right? Um, but the way to expose this is to bring it out into the open and to talk about it and right. start educating people. Right. We just got a minute left here. Would you encourage people, like we, we see reported hate crimes on the rise to Vancouver Police Department, for example. So would you encourage people, if they see something, to say something, that if you see racist incidents, if people have been have suffered racial abuse or taunts that they should re they should speak up and they should report it absolutely you know i didn't report that and i mean that was uh, we're talking over 25 years ago and yeah. i was you know a lot younger and, and, and a lot more naive then and i wish i had um i'm not sure what the response would have been um but i think if if you do see something it should be reported it should be put out there so that we know that that undercurrent is there you know we saw a lot of assaults during the beginning of the pandemic against people uh, people of chinese heritage right yeah. um uh so th these things need to be exposed and need to be out there and people need to know that there's you know that there there that uh, uh, there is help out there and that you know um that we can get through this and again 
like I said, to to be elected as such a visible such a visible minority uh, to the legislature it speaks volumes to the good heart and good nature of most British Columbians, and I truly believe that. Um, and I and I think that's why I think education is really the key to uh, uh, fighting systemic racism. Congratulations on the win! Thanks for coming on the show today. I look Thank forward you, to ta- look forward to talking to you again. Absolutely. Take care. Okay.